The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. I mentioned last time that the uh, overall presentation of preaching with respect to biblical theology is given in the book that I wrote, Preaching and Biblical Theology. And there's a a briefer statement of this as a chapter uh, in a book that has uh, only appeared recently, uh, edited by uh, Dr. Logan, Dean Logan, uh, the title of the book is The Preacher and Preaching, and there's a chapter in the book that I wrote with a title, with a, uh, the, uh, under the, the title, Preaching Christ from All the Scriptures, on pages 163 to 191, and I'd like you to, uh, to read that. Yeah, they're in my mailbox. Uh, I'm going to get them in between the end of this hour and the beginning of the next hour, so be patient get it all worked out yet. Uh, Patrick Fairbairn, um, The Topology of Scripture. Uh, In that book, he has a chapter on historical types that is uh, very valuable to read. Historical types. One chapter in Patrick Fairbairn's book, The Topology of Scripture. I did recommend uh, uh, Gopelt's article, Tupos, in the uh, Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. And then on the other side of the sheet, just one uh, matter that I'd like to call your attention to, the book by Derek Kidner on Proverbs. Uh, in the, it's in the uh, series, uh, Tyndall series of Old Testament commentaries published by InterVarsity in England. And that uh, book on Proverbs, that commentary on Proverbs, has an excellent introduction to the wisdom literature by Derek Kidner, and uh, I would highly recommend that you read that. I'm not talking about the wisdom literature today. We'll get to that tomorrow, but uh, that would be very desirable uh, to read that particular part of um, Kidner's book. Now, last time we were uh, speaking about the witness to Christ in the Uh, history of the Old Testament, and now I would like to uh, uh, summarize uh, some of the Christological principles uh, in redemptive history. Uh, First, the obvious point that the history of the covenant, which is Old Testament history, uh, leads to Christ as its goal. The structure of the Old Testament is eschatological. It does point forward to that which is going to be fulfilled in the latter days. And if we are to understand the message of the Old Testament, we have to understand its prospective reference, the way it's pointing forward. 
So the covenant history of all the scriptures is pointing forward to the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. You remember when I mentioned yesterday that in Deuteronomy 30, we have the record of uh, how the blessings of God will be poured out, then how the judgments of God will be poured out, then after the blessing and the judgment, the great restoration of the latter days. And the prophets who write uh, in the Old Testament, and remember the uh, books of history, as we usually speak of it in the Old Testament, are prophetic books. They are written by prophets. And the thrust of those prophetic histories is to show the faithfulness or the unfaithfulness of the people of God uh, to the covenant that God had established with them. You know, when you read through First uh, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, uh, the same thing with Chronicles. It becomes evident that what you're being given is not a full political history. It's certainly not a full military history. It's certainly not a series of uh, more or less connected biographies. Uh, but what you have in the Old Testament is a history of the covenant a history of the dealings between God and his people. And we are being told when the people are being faithful and when they're being unfaithful. So the whole thrust of the history is a history of the covenant and therefore pointing forward to the final blessings of the covenant. The promise that God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. Uh, this is the great promise that's going to be fulfilled in the latter days. And as the Old Testament moves forward, it becomes more and more evident that that fulfillment will be found in the coming of God himself and in the coming of the Messiah. And then we have that amazing link up between the promise of God's coming and the promise of the Messiah's coming, because the name of the Messiah uh, will be a divine. That is to say, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So in Isaiah 9, 6, uh, the divine name is given uh, to Jesus Christ himself. And in the very last of the prophets, uh, at the end of the Old Testament, uh, it is uh, obvious that the one who is to come uh, will be none other than the angel of the Lord, that it is God himself who's coming, and the one who comes uh, as uh, uh, the angel uh, is also uh, the, the Lord of the covenant uh, who will appear. Uh, Malachi chapter 3, Behold, I send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant, or the angel of the covenant, whom you desire, behold, he cometh, saith the Lord of hosts. But who can abide the day of his coming, and who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like a fuller's soap. So the promise of the coming of the Lord, and uh, that coming of the Lord is the coming of the one who is also the messenger of the covenant. And the great witness of the New Testament is that the Lord has come, that uh, that which is promised uh, has now been fulfilled. Uh, the uh, whole witness of the New Testament is to the coming 
of the one who is both the Lord and the servant. The angels announce the birth of Jesus Christ. And in the second chapter of Luke, uh, he's not only spoken of as uh, the uh, Lord's Christ, the Lord's anointed, but in the second chapter of Luke, he's also heralded by the angels as the anointed Lord, uh, as uh, the one who is himself the Lord, who has come to be his, uh, the Savior of his people. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for it is he that shall save his people from their sins. Matthew 1.21 uh, the one who comes is himself the Savior, uh, the Deliverer uh, of Israel, uh, the, uh, the glory of God's people Israel. Uh, not uh, just uh, that he's a glorious person, but he's the very glory of Israel, the God of Israel, who, who comes incarnate uh, in the birth of Jesus Christ. So at the beginning of John's Gospel, where you have Jesus presented as the divine Logos, who not only was with God, but was God, uh, you have the very heart of the Christian message, that the promises are fulfilled in the coming of God himself, and that Jesus Christ is none other but God the Son, uh, the one who has uh, the lordship that is divine, who can uh, walk on the water, can multiply the, the bread, can summon the fish of the lake, uh, the one who has uh, the power of God, but the one who is also in the form of a servant and comes uh, determined to die, to give his life for his people, and then to rise again in triumph. Uh, the amazing unity of the scriptures is found in the fulfillment of the promise of the Old Testament that uh, the one who comes is both the Lord and the servant. Now, uh, covenant history leads to Christ as its goal, and covenant history also anticipates Christ uh, in its symbolism. And here we need to note there are different forms of symbolism. There are symbolic events uh, by which uh, the Lord indicates the meaning of his salvation, the meaning of his deliverance. Uh, what would be a symbolic event from the Old Testament? A an event that has a depth of meaning beyond uh, the event itself. The Exodus, uh, certainly excellent uh, answer. The Exodus is one of the outstanding uh, events of the Old Testament. But when you see the way the Exodus is reflected on in the Psalms, uh, when you see how the Exodus is referred to in the prophets, uh, for example, in Isaiah 40, where you have the picture of God marching through the desert again, as once he did long ago, uh, you see that the Exodus is seen as having a significance that goes beyond itself. It's not simply that people were brought out of slavery. It's the fact that God revealed himself to be the Savior, the deliverer of his people Israel. Stand still and see the salvation of God, the deliverance of God. And they stand still and they see it as the sea opens up. And so you see the emphasis is not on what the people uh, what God brought the people out of, uh, the emphasis is on the God who brought them out and how he is revealed to be the Savior and the deliverer of his people. Well, now, there are other events that are also symbolical. Uh, think of, uh, uh, well, uh, tell me a couple of others before I start suggesting some, all right? Yes, Abraham offering up Isaac. Uh, there's a good example. Now, you see uh, in that passage in Genesis 22, 
Abraham is being tested with regard to his faith because God asks him to offer up his beloved son. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. Uh, he is the, the beloved. Uh, the Greek translation, the Old Testament there, agapetos, uh, which is the term that's applied to Jesus Christ in the New, New Testament. Uh, the beloved son of uh, Abraham. Now, uh, as you read that passage, you see, yes, uh, Abraham's faith is being tested. Is Abraham willing to give up that which is dearest to him? And he is. He's ready to obey the word of the Lord. And he goes up uh, the Mount Moriah and is ready to plunge the knife into the breast of his uh, son at the word of God. So Abraham uh, passes the test. But you see, the passage in its construction does not focus only on the faith of Abraham. It focuses also, and even centrally, on the work of God. Because uh, what is uh, the name of that place given by Abraham? Well, Jehovah Jireh. That is to say, the Lord will see. Or as uh, it can be translated, the Lord will see to it. Uh, he is the God who sees to it. Uh, and uh, the saying, you know, as it is said, in the, mouth, in the mount of the Lord uh, it shall be seen. That is, in the mount of the Lord it will be revealed. And, of course, there the emphasis is on the fact that God provides a ram caught in the thicket that is to be the substitute for Isaac so that Abraham does not have to slay Isaac, but rather to, to slay the ram caught in the thicket. Well, you see, when, it's, when the emphasis is not on the triumph of Abraham's faith so much as on the provision that God makes, then you see that the passage has a deep symbolic significance. Uh, it's not just, uh, you know, uh, Soren Kierkegaard uh, uh, sadly misunderstood that uh, whole passage. Uh, he saw it as what he called the teleological suspension of the ethical. Uh, that is to say that Abraham was being uh, uh, commanded to commit murder, that Abraham was being commanded to disobey the commandment of God. Uh, to do something that was uh, a sin of the worst sort, really, to murder his own son. Uh, but you see, uh, to look at it that way is to misunderstand the structure of the narrative. Because what we're being told is that God has the right to require sacrifice, uh, that Isaac, the beloved son, is one whose life is already forfeit. He is a sinner. That Abraham is one who ought to be offering a supreme sacrifice for sin, and the blood of bulls and goats can take it away, and it must be the seed of the promise somehow uh, through whom the atonement will come. So it must be the seed of the promise that will be offered uh, for sin. And yet Isaac, of course, is not uh, himself uh, free of sin. And therefore, there is a substitute for him. There is the, the ram that God provides. Uh, but surely, uh, the point of the passage is not simply to show uh, the faith of Abraham, but it is to show, if you please, the cost of redemption. Uh, the fact that uh, it, is, uh, it costs everything. Uh, Abraham has to be willing to give up his only son. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, it can be said that it costs nothing. <laughs> that is to say, God provides it. Jehovah Jireh. 
Uh, it was God who provided Isaac in the first place by a miraculous birth, and now it's God who provides a substitute for Isaac in the ram caught in the thicket. Now, you see, when the Apostle Paul later says that uh, uh, the Lord has shown his uh, uh, love to us in the sacrifice of his son, uh, when, uh, when he uh, speaks of the sacrifice of the beloved, uh, when he says, uh, if God spared not his only son, but delivered him freely, delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? You see, when Paul writes that way, it's clear that he has the sacrifice of Isaac in view. Uh, Abraham did not spare his own son, but delivered him up. And so God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up. And if we preach uh, Genesis 22 only from the perspective of the testing of Abraham's faith, then we uh, fail to see what the faith is in. Uh, the faith is in the promise of God. And the author of Hebrews points us a better way when he tells us that uh, Abraham believed and believed that God would, if necessary, raise Isaac from the dead by a resurrection. <laughs> You see, Abraham believed that Isaac had to be uh, the child of the promise and that he couldn't be destroyed. And yet God said to offer him as the sacrifice. And so, you know, that uh, pathetic passage as Abraham's taking Isaac up the mountain, you know, and Isaac says, here's the, here's the wood and here's the, uh, the, the fire for the sacrifice, but, but where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And you can just see how that would tear at Abraham's heart. Uh, where is the lamb indeed, his own son? And you know, he says, God will uh, see to it. God will see to a lamb for the sacrifice, my son. Uh, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. And uh, the author of Hebrews causes us to recognize that in saying that, uh, Abraham is confident that they're going to come back down the mountain again. Remember, he tells the servants, wait here and we will come back to you, and uses uh, uh, the plural. That, uh, and the author of Hebrews sees a deep significance in that, that Abraham was assured that somehow or other, even if by resurrection, uh, they would come back down the mountain together. Well, you see what uh, I'm emphasizing, that uh, we wouldn't do justice to the structure of Genesis 22 if we ignore uh, the uh, objective significance of it. Not just the subjective in the faith of Abraham, but the objective in the playing out in history of this tremendous scene in which the beloved son is offered up. And what Abraham didn't have to do, God did. And then that's why Paul says, if the Lord, God, so loved us that he gave his only son for us, then how shall he not with him freely give us all things? Well... You can go through the events of the wilderness wandering and again and again and again and again uh, you see symbolic depth to them. Uh, Moses lifts up the serpent in the wilderness and Jesus says as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness even so must the son of man be lifted up. Uh, so, uh, well, uh, yes, right. Well, I, I think he's, uh, I, yeah, I guess it'd really be well if we read that chapter and then discussed it. Uh, as you say, I think he wants to 
hold to the integrity of the passage, you see. He doesn't want to uh, import into the passage something that it doesn't say, and he wants to stress the integrity of the covenantal structure of the Old Testament, which I think is fine. But, uh, you see, there's been a long tradition of leaning against uh, a symbolical interpretation of things uh, for fear that we'll be importing something that isn't in the text of the Bible. Uh, but, you see, my argument is that it is in the text of the Bible. Uh, it's certainly the way the New Testament uh, reads the Old, uh, but I'm saying it's... Uh, the New Testament reading of the Old is not arbitrary. <laughs> Uh, the New Testament reading of the Old is faithful to the Old Testament itself. And that uh, uh, it's not... Well, let me just go on for a minute. We can come back to that again. There are symbolic events. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, and if we could go on and on and on with symbolic events, uh, the, the, the whole wilderness wanderings, every one of them has rather just overwhelming symbolic significance. The, uh, the, uh, at Marah, where the bitter waters turn sweet, and God says, this will be for a statute and an ordinance. <laughs> or what? <laughs> well, what he did. And what does it show? I am the Lord that heals you. <laughs> As I heal the water, I heal you. <laughs> Keep my covenant. Well, <laughs> it's the covenant, but it's the covenant symbolically represented. And what does it point forward to? Well, of course, the, the last... Uh, uh, the finale of God's healing. Uh, what is God's promise? That he'll heal. Well, does that just mean that they're not going to get, uh, if they keep his commandments, they won't have the syphilis that was common in Egypt or the gonorrhea or something like that? Uh, is that what God is saying and nothing more? Of course not. Uh, he's saying, uh, I am the Lord who heals you. And when Jesus Christ comes and performs all these miracles, he's showing that he is the Lord who heals. And uh, God's healing uh, in the Old Testament can't be seen in its central significance until you see what it's pointing toward, the ultimate and final healing. Uh, and, uh, uh, oh, you have uh, uh, the, the battle with the Amalekites in the wilderness, and uh, you have Moses holding up the rod, and uh, uh, the Aaron and Hur uh, on the two sides holding up his hands while he holds up the rod, and while the rod is aloft, Israel's victorious uh, over the Amalekites. And when he uh, lowers the, the rod, then uh, they're defeated. And, uh, and what's that called at the end? Jehovah Nissi. Uh, the Lord my banner. And you, you mustn't uh, misunderstand. Uh, uh, banner really means ensign. Uh, for us, a banner has to be made of cloth. But in the ancient world, uh, the, the, to which uh, this word uh, refers, uh, it, it wouldn't be cloth usually. It, it would be, uh, uh, well, you know, in battle originally, it was just a spear that would be held up uh, to... Uh, point forward when you're supposed to attack and uh, point this way if you've got to make a strategic regrouping. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, that, that would be how it would go. But uh, then later on, you tie some cloth on the spear to make it a little more evident where the end of the spear is. And after that, you get a flag. But, but they started out with just the spear. And, you know,
know, even the Roman ensigns carried by the centurions, they had eagles and things on the top. They didn't have cloth tied onto them. Uh, and so the banner uh, in view is, is uh, the rod of Moses. And Moses is holding up his rod, and that's the banner. And uh, the, the, the name of it is the Lord, my banner. Uh, and that's explained with the statement, there is a hand lifted upon the throne of God. Now, that uh, statement has given translators fits. Uh, they've given all kinds of uh, explanations and translations to it. Uh, but all it says is there's a hand lifted upon the throne of God. Well, what does that mean? Well, Moses' hand was lifted all day holding up his rod. And now we're told there's a hand lifted on the throne of God. Now, some take it that that's God raising his hand in an oath. Uh, uh, well, maybe, but it seems more evident that it's just God saying, the Lord's my banner, the Lord's holding up his rod, and there's a hand lifted on the throne of God that is the source of the victory. So, all right, uh, obviously... Well, you can say, all right, that's just a symbolic uh, detail given to the event. But why is the event recorded? For the sake of the symbolic meaning, isn't it? <laughs> the Lord, my banner. Uh, what's, what's the burden of that account? Is the burden of the account that Israel won a battle? <laughs> or is the burden of the account that God is revealed as the banner of Israel, the, the one who gives them the victory? You see, just because it's about God, it's about his salvation, uh, because it is about the covenant, if you please, uh, therefore it cannot help but be about the heart of the covenant, and therefore about the meaning of the covenant, and therefore about Jesus Christ, in whom all this is revealed. You know, take Christ out of the picture, and what's the significance that there was a, a, a skirmish in the wilderness uh, won by Joshua leading some Israelites in battle? Well, you get uh, symbolic events, and yes, sir? Yes, I think so. Uh, if, as long as you safeguard it by seeing uh, that uh, the, the symbolism uh, will vary and there are things that are not in themselves symbolic uh, uh, of, uh, uh, certainly not of the heart of redemption. Uh, for example, a famous one, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the spies uh, go into Jericho and Rahab uh, protects them and and then when the city of Jericho is destroyed, uh, she's told to hang a red cord out the window, and that's so that she and her house will be protected when uh, the city is destroyed at God's command. Now, you see, you have to ask yourself, um, what is the significance of that detail? What about that red cord? And, of course, many people have said, well, the red cord is a symbol of the blood of Jesus Christ. Well, you really have to ask yourself first, uh, is it a symbol uh, in that sense? Uh, is it in any sense part of a sacrificial ritual or something? Now, suppose she'd been told uh, to dip a cord in blood and hang it out the window. See, that'd be a little different because blood plays a symbolic role through the whole Old Testament. 
But the red cord out the window just seems to be uh, something that would be uh, uh, visually perceptible so that the, the Israelites could distinguish her house. It seems to have a very simple function that is not symbolic. So you see, while you say uh, the victory over Jericho in which the walls fall down uh, has a reference beyond itself in that it shows the power of God to deliver immediately and, uh, and triumphantly and therefore points forward to the day when, as the prophets say in Ezekiel, for example, every wall shall fall. You know, it's a, it harks back to Jericho, but it talks about the ultimate destruction of all the kingdom of darkness. So uh, while there is a, an overall reference in that great redemptive event, uh, you would still have to beware of arbitrarily assigning symbolic values to things that are not symbolic. Uh, the, uh, I don't know entirely why the red cord, I presume it was before the days of red light districts, and there's no connection there, but uh, uh, considering uh, that Rahab was a member of the oldest profession and all that, uh, but uh, you see, the, the red cord doesn't do anything more than distinguish the, uh, the place. It, it's not meant to be a, a symbol, which we'll get to again in a minute. Symbolic events, prophetic symbolism. We don't have any problem with this, do we? Uh, uh, Ezekiel uh, sets up that uh, picture of Jericho, uh, I mean of Jerusalem on a clay tablet, you know, to talk about the siege of the city. Uh, uh, the false prophets uh, uh, make horns and say that this is the way Israel is going to prevail and uh, the true prophets told to uh, smash it up. It's not going to happen. Uh, there are various things that prophets are called to do. Uh, uh, you know, Jeremiah had to do some pretty embarrassing things uh, involving his underwear and stuff like that. And uh, uh, why, why are prophets told to do these things? Well, it's because they're acting out in a symbolic way uh, the, the significance of what the work is that God is going to do. I don't think that's a problem. I think we'd all agree that there are prophetic symbols. Then ceremonial symbolism. Uh, this, again, is evidently symbolic, isn't it? Uh, the whole point of the sacrificial system uh, is, sim is symbolism. The uh, death of a bull or a goat uh, has no religious significance in and of itself. Uh, it's significant only in terms of symbol. And uh, the same thing uh, for the tabernacle, you know, the appointments of the tabernacle uh, all have uh, symbolic significance. Uh, even the... Uh, the, the, the fruit, uh, the, the knops and the flowers on the golden lampstand or the embroidery on the veil that se separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. Uh, these things, for example, which uh, picture again uh, the fruitfulness of the Garden of Eden and of Paradise. Uh, they're a way of indicating that uh, uh, as God dwelt by the gate of the garden, so now he dwells uh, in his house uh, among Israel. So the, there, there's symbolism all through the ceremonial system. There's also the symbolism uh, that I would call official symbolism, uh, by which I mean, that's an awkward word, but I can't get a better one, I mean the symbolism of office. You see, what David does is particularly significant uh, because he is the Lord's anointed. 
And the very fact that he's marked out as the Lord's anointed uh, gives him a special function in the history of redemption. Remember how David uh, treated Saul with such great respect. He didn't treat him as a personal enemy uh, who could be met in combat and destroyed. Uh, He treated him as one against whom he could not lift up a weapon uh, because Saul was the Lord's anointed. And in in that respect, David shows that he sees Saul uh, not just as a man with wicked purposes and designs against him, but he sees Saul as one who is anointed of the Lord, marked out. Now, we'll come to this again in a moment when I talk about the Psalms, because David writes the Psalms in his capacity as the Lord's anointed. And therefore, when he speaks, he speaks as a representative of the people of God because of his position. And, of course, what's true of the king is also true of the priest, uh, who is uh, a representative of the people of God as he prays. It's also true of the prophet, uh, who is marked out as uh, the one who bears God's word to the people. And so these men who have uh, particular roles to fulfill are marked out by those roles. Now, the broadest role in the Old Testament is the, grows right out of the covenantal structure. That is to say, the role of the servant. God is Lord, and his people are his servants. And there is, in particular in the Psalms, the role of the suffering servant. And, of course, in the songs of the suffering servant in the prophecy of Isaiah. Uh, The servant of God, the one who suffers for his name's sake. And as the suffering servant of the Lord, he takes on a particular significance, a significance with which others can identify because of the particular calling that he bears. Now, uh, that, that leads us, uh, covenant history leads to Christ as its goal. Covenant history anticipates Christ in its symbolism. And then I'd like to uh, point out that covenant history uh, reveals Christ uh, in his salvation. Covenant history reveals Christ in his salvation. Now, it does so in the direct epiphanies, that is, the appearances. Uh, Christ appears as the angel of the Lord. Uh, There are some books about Christ in the Old Testament uh, that focused exclusively on these epiphanies, on these appearances. And uh, uh, Hengstenberg, in his great work, The Christology of the Old Testament, uh, devotes uh, careful attention to these passages in which uh, uh, the Lord appears Uh, as uh, he did, for example, uh, when he appeared with the angels to Abraham before the destruction of Lot. And then the the Spirit of Christ is uh, already present, actualizing redemption. Uh, In Isaiah 63, 14, we're told about how uh, the Spirit of the Lord led Israel in the wilderness, how God bore them along in his Spirit. And Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1.11 that uh, the prophets of the Old Testament spoke as the spirit of Christ that was in them uh, did uh, uh, prophesy. Uh, That is, the prophets not only speak about Christ, but they speak by the power of the spirit of Christ. It is uh, Christ himself who is speaking to us through the prophets. And... uh, I believe that uh, that passage that has been so much controverted in 1 Peter, where uh, we read about uh, Christ uh, 
uh, going uh, in, the in the spirit, going to the spirits in prison, uh, is uh, uh, really a reference to the preaching of Christ through Noah uh, in the time uh, of that great wickedness before the flood. So Jesus Christ is the one who through the prophets, uh, by the power of his spirit, is uh, testifying to the redemption even as he is uh, uh, working it out. Now, I'd like to uh, take a moment on this matter of how the symbolism relates to uh, the, the history uh, of redemption. And <clears throat> uh, let, let me point out that here you have, say, an event or a, a ceremonial institution or something of the sort uh, in the Old Testament. And uh, here, in this, here in this event, uh, there is a symbolism present of some sort. Then you have a, a line of uh, symbolism. Okay? Now, you have the history of revelation, the history of redemption, moving through uh, time. The history of redemption... And the Lord reveals to us the meaning of it in the history of Revelation. Now, what the, this event symbolizes, uh, I would like to call truth to the first power. Uh, truth as it is made evident at that period in the history of redemption. Okay? Then, as this history of Revelation goes on, uh, that truth becomes more and more elaborated progressively with the unfolding of God's revelation. But it's moving toward a goal. And the goal is the fullness of truth in Jesus Christ, which uh, I would call truth to the nth power. All right? So you have that unfolding revelation of the truth which was symbolized by a certain event or whatever in the Old Testament. Uh, the Passover, for example, is obviously a, a symbolical event. And uh, the uh, offering of the Passover lamb, uh, so that the firstborn of Israel need not die, and the firstborn, of course, uh, stands for the whole, that which opens the womb, and all therefore belongs to the Lord that comes from the womb. So here is the firstborn who is, uh, who is uh, delivered by the offering of the lamb in the place of the firstborn in the Passover. And then Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. He is the Passover Lamb. Uh, he is the one of whom that, whom that Lamb symbolizes. But you see, that symbolism of the Passover Lamb uh, is, uh, reveals a truth that uh, of a substitutionary sacrifice, a truth which is elaborated and developed in various ways as you go through the Old Testament, of course, in the whole sacrificial system, but in a very particular sense as it relates uh, uh, to the Passover lamb and the redemption of the firstborn in the relation to the redemption money paid for the firstborn and uh, the threat against the firstborn uh, that can be met only by uh, the, the redemption. So you get all, all this symbolism, uh, this truth that is being symbolized, you get that developing through the ages. Then, of course, if you have this structure, you can always draw the hypotenuse of the triangle. 
And uh, that line is the line of topology. You see, the type uh, is the symbol as it's extended through the history of redemption to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Now, if you can't draw this line, you can't draw this line. If it's not a symbol in the first place, it can't be a type in the second place. Uh, uh, therefore, Gerhardus Voss says in his uh, book on uh, uh, the um, uh, biblical theology, the Old Testament, uh, he says that the, the door of topology is at the farther end of the house of symbolism, which is a kind of uh, a Victorian way of saying you've you got to have a symbol before you have a type. Okay? Uh, and now... Uh, uh, Richard Craven, uh, who was a, a student here, uh, has proposed that we could um, uh, put in a couple of other lines, and I've added another line or so myself. So now we have, um, we have this. And just so there may be some of... I know many students now have engineering backgrounds, but uh, a few of you have been handicapped with the kind of liberal arts training that we recommend for, uh, we have foolishly recommended for many years. <laughs> and so and now uh, I have, uh, since you may not be able to sketch this out readily without a T-square, uh, I'm uh, distributing these. So just pass them around. That's good. All right. Now, uh, The, uh, the two lines that Richard Craven has suggested are um, uh, the black ones there, moralism and allegory. See? Now, in both of those, you have uh, invalid scriptural interpretation. Uh, what, what are they and what's the matter with them? Well, to get to them, I have to draw one more line here. And that's the line of significance. You see, as we present the Word of God to people, as we preach, as we teach, what we're doing is showing the significance of the truth as that's revealed in Jesus Christ. We're applying the truth. We're showing what it means. Uh, and, you know, significance, it has sign in it. <laughs> if you please, we're decoding what's uh, been coded. Uh, there, there's the symbol, there's the truth, and now there's the application of it, the meaning of it, the, the significance to us where we are, okay? Now, the problem is uh, people have a habit of cheating on this. And, and one way of doing it is uh, this approach of moralism. And I, I've made that a wavy line because I don't want you to confuse that with the straight lines. <laughs> but the moralism, what would that mean? Well, that means that the way you present your message down here, the message that you give to people, uh, the way you present it is just go back to an Old Testament truth 
without considering how that truth unfolds in the history of Revelation and comes to its meaning in Jesus Christ. See, uh, it's, uh, it's going back in the Old Testament and preaching as though you lived in the Old Testament. <laughs> Uh, as though you lived there as somebody who was handicapped <laughs> and didn't have what the Old Testament saints really had, <laughs> uh, a, a forward look. <laughs> as the author of Hebrews said, they knew that without us, they weren't made perfect. <laughs> so the, the, the Old Testament people, uh, the ones who were men of faith and women of faith, <laughs> Uh, they were looking forward to what would be revealed, you know. Every single one of them was. And in the moralistic approach, you sort of forget all that, and you go back and you just uh, uh, teach what the truth as it was then revealed, so you would say, uh, without any of the perspective reference that that truth necessarily has. Because, dear friends... Who revealed this truth? Hmm? Who revealed this? Well, ask Peter, and he'll tell you, Jesus did. Christ did, through the Holy Spirit, through the Spirit of Christ. The prophets spoke, and the, the, the writing prophets who wrote up the history of Israel, they wrote it as the Spirit of Christ in them, moved them to write it. Because they knew that it had significance. And they knew that the significance would come with Jesus Christ. And, and they were yearning and thinking about it. And you know, Peter says, even the angels desired to look into these things. Uh, he uses an interesting word, that, the same word that's used when they uh, stooped down, looked into the tomb, you know, to see the grave clothes, <laughs> had to kneel down and peer in. Well, the angels are described as, uh, as it were, peering over the battlements of heaven. Uh, uh, what's going on down there? Uh, what's this great mystery that God's developing? What's the wonder of his plan, you see? And uh, my friends, uh, please remember, uh, the living God, uh, God the Son, who's with the Father from all eternity, uh, when he reveals a truth to Abraham back here, he reveals it to the one uh, who is already being drawn to look forward, but he reveals it as the one who's going to come and fulfill all this. Right? See, uh, God's, God has his plan from the very beginning. The, before he created the world, uh, he had uh, chosen Jesus Christ to, to, to be the Redeemer. Uh, foreknown before the foundation of the world was Jesus Christ, as Peter tells us. And uh, we too were foreknown uh, in Christ before the foundation of the world, chosen in Christ. Remember, God's not thinking this up as he goes along. Uh, he has this in view from the very beginning. And when he says this, he's thinking of this, <laughs> isn't he? I mean, what's it all about anyway? Is it an Old Testament religion which is succeeded by a New Testament religion? Or is there the unfolding in the realization and fulfillment of the great design that God has from the very beginning? Well, moralism shortcuts all of this. (coughs) 
And I'm afraid there's a lot of moralistic uh, preaching and teaching that goes on. As I said yesterday, uh, there's a great deal uh, in the whole Sunday school literature of the church that has been completely moralistic. Uh, be, be brave uh, the way David was. Uh, be strong the way Samson was. Well, you know, Samson, they're, they're great stories, Samson, right? But um, in a certain sense, they're not too edifying, are they? I mean, you know, this, uh, this joker, uh, I mean, he's the kind of guy who'd be reading Playboy magazine, isn't he? I mean, what, what type of fellow was Samson? I mean, he, he liked women, he liked jokes, uh, he... Uh, uh, sure, he did amazing things. He picks up the gates of Gaza and carries them across country and puts them on top of a hill. Uh, but uh, uh, what got him into that? He was spending a night with a harlot in Gaza, right? And uh, uh, the Philistines uh, thought they had him caught there, and so they shut all the gates against him. And uh, uh, he showed that with uh, the strength that he had, uh, uh, given of God, uh, gates were no problem. He could just pick them up and walk off with them. Well, now, you know, if you're going to tell kids this as a Sunday school story, uh, would you please explain how the moral comes in? <laughs> well, you can say he's a counterexample. He shouldn't have spent the night with a harlot, see. Uh, okay. Uh, well, then... Why did the Lord let him carry the gates away? Why didn't God uh, judge him for his sin instead of letting him uh, uh, come out a triumphant uh, uh, figure in this? You know, it doesn't fit, does it? Uh, he goes down to seek a Philistine wife, and a lion meets him in the way. And you'd say, well, maybe the Lord sent the lion to suggest to him that he wasn't about to do a very good thing. And... Uh, so what does he do? He, he tears the lion limb from limb. And, uh, you know, he comes back, he comes back that way again to, to visit his wife. And he finds out that uh, uh, there's honey in the carcass of the lion and so on. And he eats that honey. And uh, then that gives him a good idea for a riddle. And uh, he, uh, he talks to the Philistines about the riddle. I got a real wisecrack for you. See if you can get this one. I bet you can. Uh, we'll put a wager on it. Well, you put on it. <laughs> What's the stakes? Uh, you know, he's, this Samson is, uh, is not an excessively pious individual any way you can look at it. <laughs> and and uh, so... Uh, What's he doing in Scripture anyway? How did, how did he ever get there? And, you know, uh, he loses the bet because they work through his uh, wife and find out what's going on. And even then he has a wisecrack, you know. If uh, uh, you hadn't plowed with my heifer, you wouldn't have got the answer to the riddle. And, uh, but then how does he pay off the riddle? How do you handle that one, you know? He goes out and kills 30 Philistines, collects their wardrobes, and pays them off the, the debt. Now, you know, most of this gets suppressed for Sunday school stories. <laughs> well, now, all right, what's it all doing there? <laughs> so you say, uh, uh, well, why? You say, well, it's there because it happened, all right? 
Uh, it's there because Samson was uh, a judge of Israel, and we're getting a record of the judges of Israel. Is that the best reason you can give for it, that we're going to have a record of the judge of Israel? Well, you see, here's Samson. His birth is announced by an angel. <laughs> All sorts of miracles in connection with the, his coming. And he has this Nazarite vow that he's separated to the Lord. And, uh, uh, you know, as, uh, Milton in his poem, Samson uh, Agonistes, said, uh, What boots it at one gate to make defense against, against the enemy? and at another to admit him uh, effeminately vanquished. <laughs> that is, uh, he's saying uh, uh, Samson was uh, pretty good in abstaining for, uh, from alcoholic beverages, but he wasn't very good in abstaining from uh, other uh, sins, uh, effeminately vanquished, uh, vanquished by his uh, lust. Uh, well, how about that now? How, how do you understand all of that? Well, put it in the structure of the history of redemption. And what are we being shown? Well, we're being shown that God is the deliverer of his people, right? And that when they are oppressed by the enemy, and when they cry out to God for deliverance, God acts to deliver them. And uh, how does he deliver them? By raising up judges, by raising up deliverers, <laughs> by raising up warriors who can uh, free them from the oppression of the enemy. And what's the point in Samson? Well, the point in Samson is God is showing that he, the Lord, is the deliverer, that the people aren't delivered by their own strength, but they're delivered by God. And so uh, you find out that when Gideon is raised up as a judge over Israel and he's made to be a deliverer, uh, that even though the uh, Israelites are far outnumbered by the host of the Midianites that have come in like a swarm of locusts to strip the land of all its harvest and, uh, and uh, reduce Israel to starvation and penury, uh, that even though there's so few Israelites to fight all these Midianites, nevertheless, God says they're too many. And he tells Gideon he's got to send them home. And uh, only 300 are chosen of God to fight against this great Post, uh, this great host uh, of the Midianites. And you say 300 men is ridiculous. Uh, 300 men won't do for an officer corps uh, to fight that many Midianites. How are you going to win with 300? But of course, God says, uh, don't be afraid, Gideon. With the 300 men, I'll give you the victory. And of course, there's uh, some strategy involved with the the, uh, the the pictures and the smoking torches, you know, and the the uh, ram's horns to blow on and they get all around the camp of the Midianites and smash the pictures and blow on the horn and wave the, the smoking torch so it bursts into flame and then they all cry out the sword of the Lord and of Gideon <laughs> and of course God has already prepared it all he's already uh, put fear into the heart of the Midianites and uh, you know that little incident where uh, they get some Gideon gets some encouragement by creeping up and hearing what what's going on in the Midianite tents. Well, you've got to read the story again if you've forgotten it. But anyway, here's, a, here's, this, here's this great victory. 300 men, marvelous victory. What's it saying? God gives the victory. Isn't that what it's saying? And he, and he doesn't need more than 300. He doesn't need a big army. 300 will do it. All right, what's he showing them now with Samson? He doesn't need 300. One's enough. 
One man. Samson is raised up, you see, as a mighty man. Uh, Gabor, uh, as a, a man of battle, a, a hero, an invincible warrior. And that one man in the power of the Spirit of God is invincible. Nobody can beat him. Uh, he can overcome anything in the power of the Spirit. Just one. And that's why he's, uh, he's marked out. That's why he's separated. One man separated to God. Uh, one man... You see, this is outward. This is external. This is symbolical. Uh, his Nazarite vow is outward symbolism. Uh, he is set apart to God. Uh, the, the emphasis, you see, isn't on... on it's not temperance lessons that, that he didn't involve himself in, in drink. The point is, he's set apart in every respect. His hair grows, he doesn't drink, he's not a normal individual. He's set apart from everybody else because he's chosen of God to be filled with the Spirit, to be the single soul warrior deliverer. And then, you see, in his own behavior, he's unfaithful to his calling. That's very, very plain. It's plain that he's not behaving in the way that he should. It's plain that he's not using the gifts of God as he should. That's obvious. But he's being used, in spite of himself almost, uh, to be God's deliverer, to show the lesson that God has that he can deliver by one. And uh, so that incident where he gets uh, uh, caught in Gaza and picks up the gate and carries it off, you see, his behavior isn't commended. He had no business spending a night with a harlot there. But nevertheless, he still is God's appointed judge. You see, his office has meaning. It isn't just what he's like, it's what he's called to be. And because he still has the Spirit of God, he can't be shut up. Uh, the gates can't hold him. There's no gate that can hold the warrior of God filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, he, he will prevail. And that's where he goes through his, through his life, you know. Uh, uh, the the uh, Philistines come and uh, demand uh, retribution after one of his uh, uh, Till Ogan Spiegel uh, type uh, deals with him. And, and uh, the, the, the uh, Israelites say, well, we've got to hand you over. We can't fight all these Philistines. And so his own people hand him over to the enemy. And they bind him. They tie him up and hand him over to the Gentiles. Uh, to be killed. Uh, uh, they're, they're betraying their own champion. And it's his own people that are doing it. And he, and they, they, uh, he, he, said he lets them uh, tie him up, you see. And he lets them hand them over to the enemy. And they say, uh, just promise us uh, uh, one thing, that you won't fight against us, you see. He's not going to fight against his own people, of course. And they, they, they tie him up, they hand him over to the enemy. And uh, what happens? Well, you know, he, he breaks the, the ropes and he, he picks up the only thing available, which happens to be the jawbone of an ass. And uh, th that's not as ridiculous as it looks. Uh, you, you look back in the uh, uh, archaeology of uh, ancient uh, Canaan and you see that uh, uh, the, 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 the ancient swords uh, had a remarkable shape. Uh, not, 
if you don't know which end of the jawbone he laid hold on, I can tell you it's this end, and it's the teeth part, <laughs> that half of the jawbone, because that's what the old swords used to look like. Well, that's a little bit beside the point, but, uh, you, you, <laughs> but he, he picked it up, and, and, and then he, he fought with, with that weapon, you see. And, and he, he killed a thousand men and wrought <laughs> a great victory. <laughs> and what did he do as he finished? Uh, he made a witticism, one of the most outrageous puns in the whole Old Testament, uh, where he says what he, done, what he has done. Uh, because it just so happens that the word for ass and the word for heap uh, sounds exactly the same. It's, it's the same word, basically, which can mean ass or heap, uh, pile, you know. And so he says, with the jawbone of, the, of an ass have I heaped heaps. Uh, but you look at that in Hebrew, and it's just the same word three times, you see, with the, uh, with the uh, jawbone of a heap, heap, heaps. <laughs> but, but what he's, uh, it's, a, you know, it's, it's a great pun. It's a magnificent pun. But after, after he rolls that one off, uh, then all of a sudden he's about ready to die, you know, because he's uh, so exhausted and dehydrated. And, and don't think that's any little joke. Uh, uh, people have, many, many people have died in Israel of dehydration without even uh, the exertion of a battle, not to say fighting a thousand men. And so he's, uh, he's really ready to die of dehydration. And at that point, uh, he cries out to the Lord, and the Lord opens a spring, and he drinks of the spring, and he's saved and redeemed. Well, come on now. What's all this telling us? <laughs> Isn't it showing us the power that God has to deliver? And, and uh, you know, the, the spring in Lehi, and the, the spring of him that calls, and another pun, it's a partridge, and also, you know, the partridge is the calling bird, and the, this is the spring of the partridge, but this is the spring of the one who calls to God, of, of Samson, who calls out to God and cries out to God to be his deliverer. Uh, well, all of that is given to us in order to show us that God is able to deliver and that he will do it, and he does it uh, uh, through Samson. Uh, and even the final incident of Samson's life after uh, his secret is uh, uh, wrested from him by Delilah and he at last tells her that it's his Nazarite vow that is the key to the, the strength that God's given him and she shaves off his hair, you know, and his vow's broken and he's delivered to the Philistines. And of course, he thinks it'll be just like before and he goes to break the ropes and they don't break and <laughs> he realizes the power of God's gone. And, then he's blinded and, and Gaza, given the job of, uh, of uh, grinding out grain. Uh, uh, not the usual picture that he's pushing around the great beam as though he were a donkey, because don't forget his strength is gone. <laughs> Uh, but he's given the humblest sort of job that would usually be the job of uh, a woman slave in that economy and in those days. And so he's uh, being put down and uh, ignored and despised and laughed at. And then they're going to have a great festival to celebrate the great triumph of Dagon, their God. And, and of course, uh, Samson, get him out. Let him play the fool before us. And he was a great joker. Let's make a great joke of him and bring him out. And uh, what they were asking him to do, I don't know, but uh, they were really making a fool of him, you see. And they're all laughing at him and mocking him. And then he gets uh, the, the young fellow that's leading him to put him where he can rest his hands on the two great pillars that held up the whole structure with all the Philistines in the gallery above and all the, the thousands gathered below. And 
uh, the way the, 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 the architecture was built in those days, you know, the, the columns would be great uh, columns of, of wood, tree trunks essentially, but they would rest in uh, stone bases, hollowed out stone bases. So he gets uh, in between the two great columns resting on these hollowed out stone bases. And then uh, he, he prays. And even then, there's a bit of a wisecrack in it. He so, says, uh, Lord, let me be avenged for one of my two eyes. And most of the translators can't take it, you know, and they change it around one way or the other. But that's what he said. Let me be avenged for one of my two eyes. And then he has another prayer. Let me die with the Philistines. You see, he knows that through his own sin. He has been blinded. Through his own sin, he's known the power of the Lord to forsake him. He realizes how he has violated and destroyed his own calling. But in his death, he would yet work one last triumph, one last victory against the Philistines. So he pushes out the columns, the house collapses, and he does die in the midst of the Philistines. All right, now, you look at all that what are you told about Jesus Christ? Well, do you see the legitimate basis for understanding? Samson is a judge of Israel, one of a series of judges, and he's the one who shows that God can deliver by a solitary judge and by a judge who is a mighty man, by a judge who can overcome the enemy, by a judge who is invincible by a judge who can't be locked in. No gates will hold him. Not even the gates of death. Nothing can hold him. This judge of Israel. Uh, nothing can hold him. That's the, the message that we're being given. Now, all right. Here, here I want to be cautious. I, I don't want to, you know, uh, plunge in with any possible connection. But don't you think it's significant in the setting of Old Testament history that it's Samson's own people who deliver him over to the Gentiles? Isn't it significant that they bind him up and deliver him? That they're willing to give up their own deliverer in their lack of faith? You see, I think that's legitimate to observe because it's supported by the whole pattern of history all through the Old Testament. It's what you're being shown all the time. That the people of God are not accepting the deliverer that God sends to them. And just as they didn't accept Samson, so in the passage of time they won't accept Jesus Christ. And he too will be bound and handed over to uh, the Gentiles. Uh, Jesus himself remarks on that. Uh, He does that in uh, Matthew 19, uh, where he says that uh, uh, he's going to uh, be delivered up by his own disciples, delivered up to the chief priests and the Uh, the Sadducees and then how they're going to deliver them up to the Gentiles (laughs) how the people of God will deliver them up to the Gentiles just as Samson was once delivered up to the Gentiles and Samson in his death we're told destroyed more than in his life the great victory of Samson was in his death and Jesus Christ uh, on the cross dies among the Philistines as it were Uh, but he brings down the very power of Satan uh, in his death so that God's mighty deliverer at last accomplishes in his death that great victory uh, that God uh, had promised. So there are illusions, aren't there? Now, dear friends, uh, when you you teach and preach about this, 
I'm appealing for a certain degree of literary sensitivity, of understanding that there are things sometimes in the Bible that are suggested, even where they may not be directly affirmed. And when you come across that in your teaching and preaching, uh, you don't want to go beyond the Bible. You don't want to make clear affirmations that aren't clearly made in the Bible. But you are not prohibited from suggesting illusions where they seem to be uh, reasonably grounded. And, uh, um, well, I'm glad to say that there's, uh, in the Westminster faculty now, there's uh, Tremper Longman, who's uh, one man who's uh, spent a lot of time thinking about literary structure in the scriptures. And that's a very fruitful uh, field of endeavor. Because, you see, uh, you see that the, the wonderful opportunity that we have, we believe that the author of all of this scripture is uh, ultimately the Lord himself. Uh, that, that the God himself is behind this. And so the things that uh, might, humanly speaking, be thought to be merely accidental or merely coincidental, uh, we notice that often in the New Testament, attention is paid to them. A, a spotlight is put on them. And you see, uh, what I'm saying is, uh, while we must be cautious and not saying, uh, uh, I'm saying for sure that uh, just as Samson prayed, let me die with the Philistines, so Christ is willing to uh, die in the midst of uh, uh, the, the enemy, die uh, among the Philistines, die at the hand of the Romans, uh, to work a great victory. I'm not saying that there's just a one-for-one one correspondence, but I am saying that it's significant that where you have this sole mighty man as the judge of Israel, that in God's wisdom, that man works an enormous victory in his death, a great victory in his death, and is willing to die for the deliverance that he can give to his people. Now, obviously, there's a lot to say on the other side as far as Samson is concerned, isn't there? He's a, uh, he's a wicked man. He, he shows how not to serve God. He shows the, 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 the failing uh, of his uh, life and the failing of his calling. So in a certain sense, he shows the very opposite of Jesus Christ. And that's true too, because that's something you're being shown all along. That not one of these men that God raises up, not Samson, not David, not Moses, not anybody, there's not one of them who is, uh, who is completely free of sin. There's not one of them who can be the ultimate deliverer. So we're always being told there has to be a greater than Samson, a greater than Moses, a greater than Jonah, a greater than Solomon. And you see, when Jesus comes, then he says, a greater than Solomon is here. And don't you see there's always an implication there? He's doing what Solomon did, only he's doing the real job. A greater than Solomon, a greater than David, a greater than Samson. A single deliverer, El Gabor, God the mighty man. Jesus Christ is El Gabor. So he is the true Samson. Not one who violates his calling, but the single deliverer who is the redeemer of the people of God. And we're told that Samson judged Israel for 20 years. And in the book of Hebrews, he's put in the list of the mighty men of faith. For all of his failings, for all of his sins, he died in faith. He died trusting in God. He died calling upon the name of the God of Israel to be his savior.